Today, I'm going to share with you the tenth, tenth, number 10 message on the, our third series on David. So those of you new at Forest, we have a three, uh, uh, we have a three sermon series every year. Spring, I, you know, I preached on the Gospels. And the summer, we, uh, I go over there some major characters in the Old Testament. And the fall, we go back to the New Testament and study the letters. So summer, last three summers, we've been studying life of David, and this summer was uh, David's tragedies. And we, we have just a few more uh, weeks left, and today's story about David is that, uh, the worst of all, okay? So be ready. What was the worst day of your life? Do you remember the darkest day of your existence? What made you so broken, so shaken, even so sunken? Perhaps that's when cancer came to your family or your friend, or when your stock portfolio, your investment was crashed, or when you are fired unjustly, or when your child was in deep trouble that you felt utterly helpless. And if those days haven't come to you yet, cheerful, it'll come to you. Life always throws these kind of uh, hard balls. Today, we'll look at the worst day of King David's life. It was so bad that I claim this is the worst day of his life, the darkest day of David. King David's worst and darkest day was when he finally found out that his third son, Absalom, staged the rebellion. And last time in the first half of 2 Samuel 15, we saw Absalom covertly conspire the rebellion for four years and cunningly declared himself to be a king in Hebron under the disguise of a religious right. Absalom was a devious and almost demonic. He turned his father's reconciliation and restoration into a rebellion. In Hebron, the capital of a tribe of Judah where his father David began his kingship, Absalom began his rebellion. The rebellion Absalom was the darkest in multiple ways. It was son who tried to kill father, let alone the father who forgave him, who brought him back from the exile and even kissed him with love. Instead of gratitude, he lied about his father and stole the hearts of an Israelite with a false PR campaign. So let me show you how David shocked and responded initially. So 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who are with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must live immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin to us and put the city to the sword. David knew Absalom was not just a devious but a murderer. Because the first time when he deceived his father, he assassinated his half-brother Amnon, the crown prince, without blinking an eye. So David urged the immediate evacuation. He told people that we must live freely, otherwise none of us is safe, and we must do quickly, otherwise he will put the city to the sword. 
By the way, some biblical scholars think that David intentionally left the city, not just for his uh, uh, safety, but to prevent a brutal siege warfare by Absalom so that he can minimize the collateral damages, the death of many innocent people. You know, most kings in the ancient world would stay in their fortress, especially good fortress like Jerusalem, because it's much easier to defend than attack fortress like Jerusalem. So some scholars think David did it out of you know, peacemaking or peace-loving heart. I'm not sure. But one thing clear is that David felt almost pain and remorse. For that, look at the verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud. As all the people passed by, the king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Wilderness. When was the last time David went to wilderness in his life? Do you remember? When King Saul tried to kill him, and David had to become a fugitive. This is the second time. This time it's not a King Saul. It was his own son tried to kill him. Can you imagine the humiliation and shock? Once again, verse 30. David continued up to the Mount of Olives, weeping, weeping as he went. His head was covered. He was a barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Here, David was not just weeping bitterly for his sad misfortune and bad son. You know what? David was actually weeping for his sin more than anything else. And he was bitter toward himself more than anyone. That's why he left Jerusalem with a covered head and bare foot. Covered head and bare foot is a well-known biblical expression of a penitence or repentance. David was acknowledging and confessing here that the darkest day of his life was his own doing. This is his own doing. So instead of blaming or cursing Absalom and the conspirators, David was facing his darkest day with God. You're not, you know, penitent unless you believe in God, right? So he was facing his darkest day with God, no matter how hard that was. And this is a very important lesson for all of us to remember and learn. That is, uh, in our darkest days and crises, that we are never alone. And we can take a darkest day with God. Jerry Bridge is a very well-known pastor. Uh, he's known for this bestseller book, The Pursuit of Holiness. But another book, Discipline of Grace, he once said this. Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. God is no farther from you on your worst day than he is on your best day. Just as the sun shines on us, good day and bad day, God's grace is always available for us for our delightful day as well as our darkest day. You know, today's story of David's dealing with the darkest day of his life tells us three important principles, three important principles about how to respond to crisis of life. And let me give you the three key words for the principle. That is uh, friends, faith, and fight. Friends and faith and fight. So first principle is about friends. 
for that, let's look at the verse 18. All his men marched past him, along with the Carathite and the Palathite, and all 600 Kittite who had accompanied him from Gath, marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back. Stay with the king Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday. Today, shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back. Take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means death or life, there will be your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead and march on. So Ittai the Gittai marched on with all his men and the families that are with him. Bad translation. Actual Hebrew text is not the families, but little ones, the children. So, you know, the Itai, the Gitai, Itai, the Gitai, they joined the Davis, you know, uh, uh, entourage with their own family, including children. And the reason I mention children is that whenever you bring the children in, you are in. You know, parents don't bring children into anything unimportant. David has a faithful supporters, among whom were the Carathite and Palathite. Who are the Carathites and Palathites? They are David's elite army and the royal guard. They mentioned the seven times in the story of David. According to Jewish tradition, they are not a Jewish people. They are actually foreigners. But as we see today, they are more than mercenaries. They are committed to David no matter what. Here we see an, uh, a stark contrast that while his own people, Israel, rejected and rebelled against David, these foreigners trusted and committed to David. And among David's foreign followers, there is a third group called Gittite from Gath, 600 of them. And what is a Gath? Gittite from Gath. Have you heard the city name Gath before? Bible readers, who is a famous warrior came out of Gath? Who made a David instant hero of the country? That was a Goliath. Goliath is from Gath. So Gittites, they are Philistines. Can you imagine? These Philistines, they are following their former adversary, David, as their new leader. I find that this is a, not just a paradoxical, but also almost a prophetic, because Jesus was rejected by his own people, but received by anybody, especially Gentiles like you and me. So now David called the leader of a Gittai, and then he, he said this, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with the king Absalom. David already granted Absalom is a new king. You are foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and I don't know where I'm going. So I understand, and I, I, you know, if you go back to Jerusalem, I understand. Go with my blessing. That's what David is saying. So according to David, Gittite came yesterday. That means they are recent, you know, uh, sojourners from Philistine, right? It's like uh, Gittites are like a people who are hired by a company which is about to go through the very aggressive uh, MNA. 
So David was a really honest and good boss that said that, hey, guys, we don't know about future. You came into a bad time, so save yourself. And then at the moment, Itai the Gitai gave one of the most inspiring speeches about covenantal faithfulness and friendship. So let's read verse 21 together. I want you to read together. Verse 21. Itai, one, two, three. Itai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord King lives, wherever my Lord King may be, whether it means life or death, there will be your servant. Itai was a royal to David when it looked certain that it would cost him something. You know, true royalty is something always costs you. We learn a lot about uh, Itai's example of loyalty. You know, Itai was a loyal to David when he was down. He did it decisively. And Itai did it voluntarily. He didn't do it for money. And he did it publicly. He did it knowingly that David's fate will be his fate. If David doesn't return, that means he will perish with David. He did not, he did not just empathize with David. He entered into David's darkest day voluntarily. You know, that's the friendship. That's the friendship. So principle one about dealing with the darkest day of your life is this. Face darkest day with a friend. Face darkest day with a friend. Don't face the storms of your life alone. And if you don't have a friend, ask me where to find the friends. I will find you good friends. Seriously. I'll find you good friends. Yeah. For us, we have some good people. Yeah. I'm not saying because I'm a, you know, Pastor, you know, I, so I'll find you. And seriously, we, oh, anyway, let me, get to, let me get back to the text. Okay, let me not dive in. Okay. I'm not a fan of Stephen Hawking, the fame, uh, famous disabled English physicist and cosmologist, but he says something that I totally concur. That is, do we have the quote? It would not be much of a universe if it wasn't home to the people you love. How about that? You know, he said universe is meaningful because of a friendship. Absolutely is right. Without friendship, universe is just a vast space with emptiness. You know, I've been reading a lot about the mental health these days because many, some of us are really going through a tough time. So I've been reading, and then I found that according to many health experts, Universe is actually safer because of a friendship. So they're saying that healthy friendship improves your mental health. And uh, I read an article by, uh, by a doctor named Dan Brennan, uh, published uh, last October in WebMD. Uh, the title of the article is Psychological Benefits of a Friendship. And this is what it said. Friends also play a significant role in promoting your overall health. Adults with a strong social support are at lower risk of many medical conditions. These include depression, high blood pressure, and obesity. 
I disagree. Uh, friendship doesn't help obesity. It actually worsens obesity. Because uh, friendship and food go together. Anytime I'm hanging around with uh, uh, people in our church, I gain weight. So I think uh, that one is, uh, you take it out. Anyway, but advances in technology allow us to connect with anyone in the world with a click of a button. But having hundreds of friends online isn't quite as the same as a few close friends you can really connect with on a deeper level. This doesn't mean you can have buddies online. Just try to remember to prioritize face-to-face interaction. Prioritize face-to-face interaction. And then rest of the article is that friendship not only prevents loneliness, but also increases your sense of belonging and the purpose, boosts your happiness and reduces your stress, improves your self-confidence and self-worth, helps you cope with the trauma such as a divorce, serious illness, job loss, and death of a loved one, encourage you to change or avoid the unhealthy lifestyle habit, uh, help you to put your problem in context to develop a stronger sense of meaning and direction, ease the emotional impact of difficulties and offer new ideas about after checking them, blah, you know, on. On this note, I want to share a short testimony from my vacation. Two weeks ago, uh, we went to a family vacation in Utah, and we went to uh, Bryce Canyon, one of the five mighty Utah, they call it. It's beautiful. You know that stone pillow they call hoodoo? Incredible. And then I took... I did something that is with a great, you know, thought. That was I took a 20 years old, I mean, 20 plus years old, the hiking boots that I seldom wore before. This is a perfect time to wear the, you know, I'm all about style. You know, do you see my 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 shoes? You know, this is a it's a very hip shoes. Anyway, so I wanna, you know, while my kids, everyone is uh, hiking on the whatever, running shoes, I have a boot. Very good, you know, brand boot. And the bottom of the Bryce Canyon, its sole came off, separated from the boot. <laughs> have you hiked without the separated, you know? I mean, I was, sh- I was, I was, I was crying inside. I was crying inside. And then out of nowhere, a young man stepped up. And then he had a, he, he you know, took off his, uh, his braid, the waist braid, and cut off with a knife. And voila, this uh, incredible string came off. I'm sorry. This string came off. And they tied my, you know, uh, uh, you know boot. And thanks to him, I could come back. And uh, he told me that uh, he sees that often, so just in case he's, he's, he was surprised, you know, uh, a friend that I met in that, that trail, beautiful but problematic trail. You know, I almost tempted to ask him, are you a Christian? You know, because he said he lives nearby. But I was afraid to ask him that question because I'm in the Utah. And then somebody in our church, he said, Pastor Paul, if I go to war, I will take a Mormon rather than Christian to be my foxhole mate. So I was afraid that he was going to say something different. So I didn't ask. 
but life. Without surprising kindness of a friend, how can you live a life seriously? How can you live a life? You know, that's what Christian and church is supposed to be. For me, the really, I, 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 I'll be honest, 100% honest. If you're in the church and you don't find the good friends, something is wrong with you or with the church. Either one or both of them is wrong. And definitely church that I want to be part of it, church that builds a friendship, that's why we call our church forest. Why forest? Forest of friends, forest of friendship. Someone said friends are other siblings that God gave us. Yes, we have a biological family. We have a spiritual family called friends. In Christ, in his body, you know, I I I truly give my testimony on this. When I became a Christian, I thought just to believe in Jesus. I I used to be a Buddhist. So, you know, I'm just changing my religion. I didn't know that I'm actually changing community. Because in Christianity, gathering, fellowship matters. And in Christ, I not only found the you know, eternal life, but also endearing friends. Seriously. If you have a half of friends that I have, you'll be really, really, you know, feel good about it. Seriously. I have, by grace of God, I met many, many good friends in Christ. So let's not face the storms of a life alone, but always a friend. And let us be a good friends to each other. Now let's look at the second key of dealing with the darkness, that is a faith. So look at the verse 24. Zadok was there to all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, the Abiathar offered the sacrifice until all the people had finished leaving the city. The second group of people followed the troubled king. David was a priest. And the name of David's high priest was Zadok. By the way, from this name, Sadducees or Zadduxes came. Do you guys remember Sadducees? The adversary, the, you know, the opposing sector of Pharisees? They all claimed Zadok to be their founder. And uh, I'm so glad that Zadok and the high priests, they chose David. Because they, you know, priests should be uh, spiritually discerning and they discerned that uh, you know, Absalom is actually evil. So they joined the, you know, priest. And they brought the Ark of God to David. Now, that's a very important thing they brought. What is the Ark of God? Ark of God is what makes the temple of Jerusalem a temple of God. Ark of God means actually holy of a holy in the temple. This is a nucleus of God's presence. The core of Israel's cosmology and religion is the Ark of God. So, Zadok and the high priest, they follow David with the Ark of God. And then, guess what David said? Look at the verse 25. King said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find the favor in the Lord's eye, he will bring me back. Let me see it. And it's a dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever he seems good to him. 
The king also said to the Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son, Ahimaaz, with you and Abiathar's son, Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I'll wait at the force in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem, stay there. David told Zadok to return to Jerusalem and carry the ark of God back into the city. Why? David trusted God, not the ark of God. David trusted God, not the ark of God. He was willing to let the ark of God go back to Jerusalem because David put his life and faith into God's hand. You know, one commentator said, instead of owning the furniture of God, David wanted to have favor of God. He wanted to have a favor of God more than furniture of God. We see here David's faith to trust God for his sovereignty and surrender himself into God's goodness instead of trying to manipulate God with his ark of, you know, ark of God. David's faith is not some kind of religious relics or an object, but in his relationship with a sovereign God. And then David said, verse 26, but if God says, I'm not pleased with you, you know what David said? I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to me. This is an incredible statement of a trust and faith. David was saying that I trust God's goodness more than my instinct and desire and definition of a goodness. And if I'm not pleasing God, I'm ready to be judged. And I should be so. Because whatever God does is a just and righteous. I'm all for God. And I pray that I have a little bit of God's favor. I see here again the David, the man after God's heart, who in the deepest and darkest time of his life, he trusts and seeks God's favor more than any fortune, any fighting army in the world. So, principle number two to deal with the darkest days of our life is this. Trust God's sovereignty and seek his favor more than controlling, more than trying to control your darkest day in your own. You know, oftentimes, when people in some kind of crisis in trouble, I see, including Christians, they try to really uh, seek other people's you know, opinion, other people's help, or majority, majority opinion, or majority you know, approval. I guess growing up in the democratic you know, country, we, we kind of have this notion that the majority means good. Majority is where is the power. And I want to tell you this. Don't seek majority with the people. Rather, seek eternity with God. Don't seek with the majority with the people, but seek eternity with God because it doesn't matter how many people are on your side. Only on God's side, there is a safety and there is significance and there is a success. You know, Charles Bolton once said this, when you go through a trial, sovereignty of God is a pillow upon which you lay your head. Do you sleep with a pillow? I do. I cannot sleep without my pillow. I cannot have a good rest with my pillow. 
actually it's a kind of expensive pillow because I value rest, right? And uh, Spurgeon said, God's sovereignty. That is a pillar of our spiritual rest. You know, David wrote five psalms during this Absalom's rebellion. And the Psalm 3 is the shortest one. And the, for me, I, actually, I like the best. So let me read quickly Psalm 3. Actually, beginning of Psalm 3 is a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And then God, I mean, David cried out to God this way. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I called out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. You know, actually, when you're in the big crisis, you don't sleep well. But David said he couldn't sleep well because of God's sustaining grace. I will not fear through the tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my Lord. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes a deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. David said, as long as God is my deliverer, I'm fine. And when you surrender yourself to God's sovereignty, you know what happened? You'll find more than peace and strength. Actually, in my case, whenever I surrender myself or my decision or whatever struggle into God's hand, I actually get excitement. You know why? Because I'm no longer in charge of that problem. God is. I put God in charge of it. When I handed the problem to God, God is in charge of it. And any time God is in charge of it, you should be excited. Because whatever God does is amazing. Amen? Oswald Chambers, who wrote the My Unmust for His Ohio, said this. Our yesterdays present, uh, present irreparable things to us. It is true that we have lost opportunities which will never return. But God can transform this destructive anxiety into constructive thoughtfulness for the future. Let the past slip, but let it slip on the bosom of Christ. Leave the irreparable past in his hand. Step out in the irresistible future with him. Amen? So when you surrender yourself to God and trust his goodness, You will have excitement. And guess what? You are free to fight. You will be empowered to fight. That is the third point. Third principle. So trusting sovereign God, you know, it doesn't mean doing nothing. Trusting God is a never passive in the Bible. It's always active. You know, faith in sovereign God doesn't mean, I'm, you know, God is doing everything and I do nothing. No, that's not a faith. Faith is that God going to do something for me? i be ready. I need to be received. It's like a preparing wedding. You know, when you get married, do you just wait for the wedding day? You get busy, right? You get busy to be, you know, celebrate. Now, let's look how David fought. Look at the verse 30. David continued up to the Mount of Olives, 
Weeping as he went, his head was covered, and he was a barefoot. All the people with him covered their head too, and they were weeping. Now David been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Who was Ahithophel? He was David's most respected and the revered advisor. Ephithophel had a son whose name was Eliam, according to 2 Peter 23:34. And Eliam had a daughter whose name, according to 2 Samuel 11:3, was Bathsheba. So who is Ephithophel? He was a grandfather of Bathsheba. So you can actually guess that Ephithophel's support of Absalom's rebellion was definitely connected and even caused by David's adultery and, you know, murder. So if I, you know, Ephipothel, he probably thought deeply disgusted and, uh, you know, angry at David. You betrayed us. How could you do that? So what he's betraying David is a result of David's betrayal. But it was a bad news to David because Epithophel was the most shrewd, proven advisor. So if you look at this, do I have that? Second Samuel 16, verse, chapter 16, verse 23. Now in those days, advice of Epithophel gave was like that of one inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ephithophel's advice. So David's heart was, you know, sunken even farther down when he heard that Ephithophel joined in Absalom. And then guess what David did? Immediately he prayed to God, the Lord turned Ephithophel's counsel into foolishness. And I want to tell you that don't underestimate desperate prayer. Don't underestimate desperate prayer or in a Hail Mary prayer. I don't know about you. I've done a lot of Hail Mary prayer, you know, and God is so gracious. You know, one, and uh, right after, just uh, right after David prayed this prayer, just a few minutes later, look at the verse 32. When David arrived at the summit of uh, Mount Olive, where people used to worship God. Wrong translation. Actually, Hebrew text is where he used to worship God. Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. You know, when David reached the top of the Mount Olive, I think he stopped. He paused. Why? I think David felt overcome with um, emotions because there, you can see panoramic view of Jerusalem. And David thought, this could be the last time I will see my beloved city, holy city of God. So if you're, you know, David probably looking at the city and they're praying, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my people. Bring me back. On that precise moment, Hushai came to meet David. He's a faithful aide came to David and joined him. And look at the verse 33. 
David said to him, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to city, say to Absalom, your majesty, I'll be your servant. I was your father's servant in the past, but now I'll be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. When the priest David, uh, Zadok and Abiathar be there with you, tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Their two sons, Ahimaaz son of Zadok and Jonathan son of Abiathar, they are there with them and send them to me with anything you hear. So Hushai, David's confident, arrived in Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. David sent Hushai to Absalom's court with a mission to frustrate Ephithophel's advice. And we'll see next story, next week, that how David's counteroffensive plan worked. So number three, not only trust God, sovereign God with the faith, but fight. And what does it mean, fight with the faith? That is, do your best and leave the rest in God's hand. Do your best and leave the rest into God's hand. Do you recognize here that the Hussai is coming to David was a God's immediate answer to his prayer? It's amazing. This is, you know, he prayed and then he's answered right there. God sent him. Don't take it, you know, this is not a coincidence. You know? And the reason I said this about the fight and to do your best in your fight and to leave the rest and result to God, especially for the students, you know, maybe I'm very, my, my, my youngest child is being a sophomore. Sophomore literally means wise fool. You know, freshman year, easy. Ah, yeah, yeah. Sophomore year, you're going to take, elect, you know, major classes. It will be tougher, you know. Those of you in high school, you're getting harder. Those in grad school, God have mercy on you. I don't, you know. My, I remember my first year in grad school. You know, grad school is a different animal. Under, you know, undergrad, there are people who plan not to study, just to graduate. In grad school, everybody plans to study. You're competing against these, uh, you know, motivated people. And sometimes when it's a difficulty, we, we, we tempted to sort of resign or give up. Don't give up your fight. Don't give up fight. Do your best. Leave the rest to God. David's, let me conclude. David's story doesn't end here. It didn't end with David's life. Actually, this story continues and culminates a thousand years later because there was another king who went to actually the same journey that David, who left Jerusalem to Mount Olive. So look at the, go back to chapter 15, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as all people passed by, and the king David also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Look at the John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus has finished praying, he left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. He and his disciples went into it. The fourth gospel, Gospel of John writer, intentionally connects Jesus going to Gethsemane to David's leaving Jerusalem. The difference? David was fleeing Jerusalem for his, because of his own sin and for his own safety. 
our King, the Son of David, Lord Jesus, went across the Kidron Valley, went into the Garden of Gethsemane, which was in the bottom of Mount Olives, for our sin, for our salvation. This story is ultimately about the story of Jesus and us. I want to tell you, most of you don't have the darkest day that I mentioned at the beginning, right? Actually, all of them that I mentioned happened to me. Each time was hard. But there is a darkest day comes to everybody. You know what that is? That is called death. Sooner or later, no one can help you. Your family cannot help you. When your doctor says you have a stage 4 cancer, that's it. Your days are numbered. You are about to meet your maker. Darkest day is coming to everyone. You know, we heard the news this morning. The uh, Gary Thompson's father, Ron, just, you know, whom we prayed last, year, last week, just when he had a stroke, right? Just last week. And then Friday, they, you, know, somebody, you know, Susie updated me, they're going to hospice, and uh, we need to pray for comfort and all that. This morning, he passed away last night. Good news, Ron was a faithful servant of God. He served at First Baptist Plano as one of the top deacons in this church. So his legacy is good. So I don't worry about Ron. I worry about Gary and the rest of the gang. They better, you know, catch up and carry on the legacy. That's how you should go. You know, I'm really glad that God, God you know, took his faithful servant in a, in a way swift and, you know, a less painful way. It's a grace. Now, how about you? When the darkest day comes to you, death knock on your door. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet your maker? Good news is, Jesus already suffered for us and secured our salvation with his resurrection. So our most, you know, our darkest day will be the delightful day for those who decide to follow Christ. Let's pray.